Thank you so much. How amazing is it to have people from our Crossroad community here today? We have a few of our volunteers down there too. Can we give them a round of applause as well? It's so beautiful, the kingdom of God and and what we see in and through the life of the church and in and through Crossroads as well. It's a beautiful ministry down there at Rabina. Who thinks Byron should preach instead of me? No one's meant to put their hand up. That's not okay. No, Byron's amazing. He is my son, so I'm very proud of him. But if I don't know you, my name is Scott. I am one of the pastors here. And we are in week five in our series on the book of Genesis. And last week, we were blessed by Pastor Tim Hanna. He came and preached a message about the first murder recorded in the Bible. And he taught us about sin and the effects of sin on our lives. It was where Cain murdered Abel. And I love that when he pointed out, you can't talk about sin without talking about forgiveness. And when we talk about sin and its effects, we must also talk about forgiveness and its victory over sin. So this week, we're going to explore the story of Noah and the ark. We all know that story, right? All kids know the story about Noah and the ark and all the cute little animals that get on, on the boat and are saved. But it's a story of divine judgment on humanity. When God sees the wickedness of humanity and brings a worldwide flood to literally wipe out the entire human race in judgment on their sin. And what we're going to explore today is God's divine judgment, but also God's divine grace. But before we do that, I would love to pray. So would you please join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. And Lord, we know that when we come to some of these scriptures, it's hard for us to understand. It's hard for us to understand judgment and grace. Lord, would you open up the scriptures to us today? Would you open up our hearts to receive your truth? And Lord, I pray that you would speak through me and to me today. And Lord, I pray that it would not look to me, but they'd only look to you, the one who brings life and life in all its fullness. In Jesus' name. Amen. So we start in chapter 6, verse 5, where it says, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent and thought of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and bird of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. So we see right at the start of this chapter, we see this judgment coming on the world because the wickedness of man was great. And we all know that God commands Noah. He says to Noah, Noah, build an ark. Build it of wood and of of tar and and build it to these dimensions. And we know that Noah builds that boat. And that's over a span of about 100 years that he is building this ark. And it's huge, right? It's not in our day and age where you could build an ark with cranes and stuff like that. Like, this would have taken a long time. People would have been asking, Noah, what are you doing? Why are you building this humongous ship? And so he builds this huge ship, and at the end of the 100 years, God's judgment does finally come. And the floodwaters come over 40 days, the rains and the deep open up, and the whole earth is flooded. But Noah and his three sons and their wives and all the animals, two pair of each, are in the ark, and they are saved. And the waters reside and the ark settles back down. And there's this new life. There's this new beginning when they all hop off the ark. And we see recorded in Genesis this divine judgment and justice on humanity. I was watching a documentary a couple of days ago and um, it was called Made You Look. And it's about art fraud. And it's about these three people who, um, what they did is they got this Chinese artist 
to paint replicas or, or paint pictures that were the same as people like Jackson Pollock and, and Mark Rothko, who were, who were very famous painters. And what they would do is they'd get these fake paintings and they would take them to an art gallery and sell them to the art gallery. And then the art gallery would on-sell them as genuine paintings. This artist from, from China, he was so good that he could use the same style as the original painters. And so what happens is this lady, Rosales, she goes on and she's the middleman essentially and she's passing these on. And so some of them are selling for a million dollars. Some sold for two million dollars. One of them sold for eight million dollars and the highest was 17 million dollars. And they were all fake, every single one of them. And one of the guys who bought one of these paintings thought, yeah, this is a little bit weird, I'm going to get it checked out forensically. So he gets the painting checked out and it's shown that it's a fake. So over a 10 year span, they had made about 60 art pieces that were fake to the value of $80 million. And so they find out that they're all fake. So they, the, the FBI actually arrest this Rosales, this lady, and bring her in. And so her boyfriend, who was in on with her, saw what was happening. He fled to Spain with all the money. The Chinese artist, he fled to China. And both those countries are countries that the Americans can't extradite out of. So they get away with it. They have Rosales, and then she gives up the whole, the whole gig. She tells them from start to finish, this is what we're doing, this is how we're doing it. And by the end of the trial, they sentence her. And they sentence her to a nine-month house arrest for $80 million worth of art fraud. One person got sentenced for nine months house arrest. And the, the problem was she was already under house arrest. And because the trial went so long, she basically walked out straight away. And there was something inside of me that I was sitting there going, that's not just. All these people got away with $80 million worth of art fraud. Justice was not served in that moment. And there's this thing in me that just, we have this thing that just desires justice. And we can't handle it when people get away with crimes, right? Like we see it on the news. We see crimes that are committed and then we hear the, the judgment that's brought down and we're like, what? How is that just to the family, to those that are hurt? Why do we have this desire for justice? Because we're made in the image of God and God is holy and God is just. The weird thing is we look at this story in Genesis and we struggle with it. We struggle with the justice and the judgment of God that he enacts on humanity. Yet we want justice, but we struggle with God's justice. Why? Because we don't understand God's holiness and we don't trust God's perfect judgments that he pulls out. So where in the story in Genesis are we? Well, we have creation, where God creates the heaven and earth, and then we have the fall, and then we have Cain and Abel, where Cain murders Abel. This is all the beginning. And then there's about 1,500 years till we get to this story. So for 1,500 years, humanity is left to themselves to govern themselves. So all these generations keep perpetuating. It's a period of time where there's no law. There's actually no Ten Commandments. There's no recorded guidance from God of how to actually treat one another. So there's no guiding structure. There's no Bible around about how we should live and treat each other. Therefore, humanity then just doesn't follow God. There's no compass to point them in the right direction. and They just come up with their own rules, their own ways to live. And what they do is they delve deeper and deeper into sin. And this shows the depths of the sin of the human heart. If we reject God and left to our own thoughts and desires, we will continue to dig deeper and deeper into sin. If we're left to govern ourselves, 
we will descend into chaos. Did you know most of the laws that we have in our Western world actually are based off the laws of God, are based off the Bible? Like thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not steal. All of these rules that we sort of follow are based off the word of God. But what we find in Genesis 6 is the course humanity will take if they're left to their own devices, if they're left to their own desires, and if they're led by sin. And it just descends into this chaos. You know, you would have been in certain places around the world where you witnessed this. There's still certain places in the world where sin is rife, where evil rules. Uh, my wife and, and kids, we went to uh, Thailand a couple of years ago. And I remember walking down this street, and uh, I won't say where it is, but I was walking down the street with my family, and there was so much sin going on. There was alcohol, there was drugs, there was sex exploitation, there were kids like I could see in there being used and abused and it's like it's evil right you walk down there and you sense the evil in the air it's like satan's playground like there are no restraints there's no care for people or who they are or their their value and their worth and they just use and abuse each other you know we all sense that in certain areas and you can tangibly feel it and this is the scene that's set up here in genesis 6 In verse 5, it says, Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intent and thought of his heart was only evil continually. Every intent. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the world had descended into this sin, into this world of just pain and suffering, and God's just like, oh, I can't wait to destroy them. He was grieved. This hurt the heart of God. He goes, this is not what I've created them for. I've not created them to hurt each other or be violent towards each other. So God was grieved in his heart. And then in verse 11, it says, The earth was also corrupt before the Lord. The earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. See, not only had humanity been given fully over to sin, but all of creation was too. That all of creation was corrupt before God. That means the animals, everything was affected by sin, and there was just violence left, right, and center, wherever you turned. And God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. This is the picture painted here by Scripture, that the entire earth was in chaos, was filled with violence, with suffering, with evil reigning in everyone's heart. And the only way to fix this was actually to destroy everything and start again. Divine judgment had come, because sin was ruling and reigning on the earth. And there's another reason why I believe, and many theologians believe, why God destroyed the earth with a flood, and that's because of these things they call the Nephilim or the giants. Now, in chapter 6, it starts off with this weird thing talking about sons of God and, and, and this offspring that were giants. And often we can read that and just go, I'll just pass over that. That's just too hard to work out, too hard to understand. But I think it gives us a really good insight into where this is set up. If something's right at the beginning of a story, it has real importance. And so, in chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Now it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. So who are these sons of God? Who are these sons of God that see the daughters of men 
and then take them as wives. Well, the Bible further on in, in the Old Testament talks about the sons of God present themselves before the Lord and they're the angels. And many theologians believe that these are the fallen angels. They've fallen with Satan and they're trying to do something very, very wicked. And so they do. They take wives to themselves and then in verse 4 it says, And there were giants on the earth in those days and also afterwards when the sons of God came into the doors of men and they bore children to them. Those were mighty men of old, men of renown. And so we see here these fallen angels, these sons of God, actually take these women and they have offspring to them. But these are not made in the image of God. They are this perverted offspring. They're this this hybrid of, of angelic beings and human beings and they're giants. And we know it later on in the, in the scriptures where they're called the Nephilim and they're evil and they, and they come to destroy and kill. And so if God allowed this perverted, ungodly offspring to continue, the image of God would have been lost. This was Satan's plan. He's like, okay, I know the Messiah is coming. I know he's coming as a man. I've heard the prophecies. God's spoken about it. He goes, what I can only do is maybe pollute the gene pool where they could maybe create this other offspring that if it permeated the whole of humanity, there'd be no one left made in the image of God, and maybe the Messiah can't come then. And so God is looking at this, and he goes, no, I'm going to stop this. And so this flood was divine judgment on humanity and divine judgment on this ungodly offspring. But here's a story of justice being served, and we actually don't like it. We can't understand why God would judge the entire human race. I, can, I can't tell you how many people come to me and go, why is God so mean in Genesis? Like, why is God so angry and, and always judging people in the Old Testament and he's different to, to Jesus in the New Testament? And the funny thing is we have this funny disconnect with our understanding of justice and God's judgment. And we judge and we think it's okay. But then when God judges, it's not. It's quite a weird dilemma we're in. It's the typical nature of sin that's in us. We sinful humanity think our judgments are right and God's judgments are wrong, even though he is holy, sinless and perfect. We say like, oh, well, I wouldn't have done that, as if we know what the right response would be. Does that make sense? Like, do we really think we can tell God what's right or wrong? Do we clearly see what's right or wrong? I don't think we do. We don't, because our judgments are clouded by our sinful nature. That's in us. And God alone can judge with perfection and holiness. So if God is holy and just, then God must, by his very nature, judge sin. Otherwise, God's not holy and just, right? If he doesn't judge sin, he's not holy and just. And there are times where we're like, well, yes, God should judge people. Like we look at people like Hitler. And we go, come on, God, when he was alive, bring your wrath down on them. Get rid of them. They're killing millions of people. God, why don't you judge him? Why don't you kill him? Why don't you kill that regime? And there's times where we want judgment, right? And we say things like, well, Hitler deserves to go to hell. But then we say, well, God shouldn't judge me. I'm not as bad as them. That's just being a hypocrite, right? Like if we're honest, I'm a hypocrite if I'm honest with myself. If we want God to judge sin in others, then we must be judged too. Because the Bible testifies that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If you demand justice, then justice must be served on you. Now, Tim Hannah talked about a story last week in John 8 where an adulterous woman is cast before Jesus and he talked about sin. 
But in that story, Jesus is pointing out a truth that we need to understand. Because when the Pharisees, they are the religious rulers, the Jews, grabbed this woman who was in adultery and threw her before the feet of Jesus, they said to him, the law says that we should stone her to death for that sin. Jesus goes, okay, whichever one of you has never sinned before is perfect and sinless, you can throw the first stone. And one by one, they walk away. Why do they walk away? Because they're sinners as well. If they want judgment on her, then God's got to bring judgment on them. And it's this interesting fact. If we're honest, we're like the Pharisees, right? We want justice and judgment to fall on people that hurt us, but we don't think we should be judged ourselves. But Jesus teaches us that we're just as bad or as guilty as the adulterous woman. Because in Matthew 5.27, he addresses this very thing. He says, You heard it was said of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust after has already committed adultery in, in, his, in, her, in his heart with her. So he's saying, hey, you want adulterous people stoned to death? But even if you've looked at someone with lust, you're just as bad. You're in the same boat. So what's Jesus t- telling us? What's he teaching us in this story? That we're all in desperate need of forgiveness and salvation. You, me, Hitler, we're all in the same boat. We're going in the same direction of judgment. Because Hebrews 9.27 says, is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment. There is going to be a day where we'll all stand before God. And the question is, will we be judged for our sin or will we be, will we be covered by grace? What do we see at the end of this story with the woman caught in adultery? Jesus shows her grace. He says to her, where are your accusers? She goes, they've all gone. He goes, I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. He shows this woman grace. We can't talk about the judgment of God without talking about the grace of God. There's one person that could have picked up a stone and killed her. There was one person there that had the right to serve justice and be totally justified in doing so. And that's Jesus. He could have literally picked the stone up and stoned her to death. And he would have been okay to do that because he is the only one that is sinless. But that's not what Jesus does. He shows her grace. He shows her the heart of God. And he says, I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. You can't talk about the judgment of God without talking about the grace of God. And humanity in in Genesis, in Genesis 6, had royally stuffed it up. We had destroyed everything. And God had to bring this justice. And he would have been fully justified if he literally wiped everyone out. Like literally wiped everyone out, including Noah. He would have been justified. But he shows grace. Like, have you ever made something and stuffed it up so bad that you had to throw it out? Like, I was making a stir-fry not long ago, um, the one time I ever cook in the year, uh, which is my family loves that because I don't cook real great. But I do this um, pork, sticky pork. It's amazing, right? I think it's amazing anyway. And, um, and I love sauce, so I do double portion sauce. Right, So I do double portion in the recipe and I make it up and I'm stir frying it and it was a little bit liquidy. So I'm like, all right, how do I fix this? I'll put some corn flour in, I'll thicken it up, this will be fine. So I put a couple of teaspoons of corn flour in, start stirring it and it starts frothing everywhere. Like I mean frothing over the edges and I'm like, what the heck is going on? I'm like, start stirring it more and more and more and finally it goes down. I'm like, that was weird, that's never happened before. And like every good chef... You taste your food before you, 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 know, you serve it, right? I taste it, and it was horrible. I'm like, what is going on? I hadn't put in corn flour. I put in bicarb soda, <laughs> right? 
And so the bicarb soda, didn't, how much, didn't matter how much grace I poured out on that, how much I tried to redeem it, it wasn't coming back. I tried salt, I tried everything. And the whole thing had to get thrown out. Sin is like bicarb soda in a stir fry. <laughs> Once you add it, it ruins everything. And in Genesis, we see all of humanity was ruined by this sin. And God steps in at the last moment and by his grace, saves Noah and the human race and creation from extinction. You see, God's reaction to sin is divine judgment, but God's reaction to humanity is always to provide a means of salvation through grace. Why? Because God is love, and love always makes a way. We see this in verse 7. So he said, So the Lord said, I will destroy man who I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and bird of the air, for I am sorry I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God is grieved in his heart. He's grieved that humanity has gone that way. And he says, but I'm going to pour out grace on Noah and his family. And he extends grace to humanity through Noah. And verse 9 said, this is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generation. And Noah walked with God. And Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, these were the three sons and their wives that entered into the ark. Now, what's it talk about when it says perfect in his generations? Many theologians believe that that's talking about his DNA. He was not mixed with this sons of God. He was not mixed with these angels. He had the image of God. He was what God purposed and created. And so God wanted to keep that and restore that. And it says he was a just man. Why was Noah just? Was he perfect? Was he sinless? No, he's just like you and me, right? But it says that he walked with God. We know that when we follow God, when we walk with God, God's grace is applied to us. So when we have faith in God, we walk in the grace of God. And we know this by Abraham. We talk about later on in in Genesis, it talks about Abraham was righteous, was accounted as righteous because he believed God. He walked with God. So Noah was not sinless or perfect, but he had faith in God and that gave him right standing with God. He was righteous or had right standing before God because grace was applied through faith. And the text is suggesting that Noah and his family were the only ones on the face of the earth left that had actually had faith in God and trusted God and walked with God. And therefore, soon there'd be no one left on the face of the earth that would know him. If God let them continue in their rebellion against him, then no one would be following God. They probably would have murdered Noah and all his family. Therefore, God, out of his divine knowledge and divine judgment, God brings flood to the earth to actually save humanity. Here's the most amazing part of the flood story. God's not getting revenge or enjoying destroying humanity. It's grieved in his heart. He wants to bring salvation. And God extends this grace to his damaged, sin-stained creation and preserve one man and his whole family. And he brings the animals into the ark and he preserves the rest of creation through that. So God's judgment was not total annihilation. It was actually a rescue mission to reset God did this to make sure humanity be saved and redeemed through Jesus Christ who was to come. Satan was, try- was trying to stop that through different means, through sin. But God says, no, I'm going to stop this because my son is going to come and redeem all things. And we focus so much on the judgment of God in the Old Testament, but God is so patient, kind and loving. You know, God wills that all people put their faith in him and be covered by his grace. Ezekiel 18, 23 says that God wills that none would perish, that all would repent, that the wicked, he takes no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. 
No pleasure. But he actually wills that they all turn to him and be saved. Genesis 15, God delayed judgment on the Amorites for 400 years. That's how patient God is. That's like Hitler's regime reigning for 400 years. Like that's patience, right? Because he wants them to turn to him. Genesis 18, God would have actually like spared Sodom and Gomorrah for the sake of only 10 people. And we get this in Genesis 18 where Abraham's having this discussion with God. He turns up and he says, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because the sin there is just pervasive and it's going to spread from there. Abraham's like, well, if there's 100 people there, will you spare it? He goes, yeah, I will. He goes, all right, what about 50? Will you spare it? He goes, okay, I'll spare it for 50. He goes, what about 30? He goes, all right, and it goes on. And then finally, Abraham's like, all right, one more, please. What if there's only 10 there? God goes, I'll spare it for 10. That's God's heart. But unfortunately, there was none in Sodom and Gomorrah. And so it got destroyed. Because if people don't repent, eventually God's judgment must fall for the sake of humanity. And this is what we see in the life, death, and burial of Jesus Christ, in the gospel, in the cross. That the judgment of sin was laid on Jesus. That the wrath of God was poured out on the Son of God. That God can't stand by and not judge sin because he is holy and righteous. Instead of pouring out that on you and on me, God goes, I will actually absorb that. I will come as a man in the flesh, fully human, fully God. And I will take on the judgment, the wrath of God for your sin and my sin. And on the cross... He cries out to the Father, why have you forsaken me? Because in that moment, that's what the effect of sin does. It cuts you off from the presence and the love of God. But he was willing to pour that out on his son, the judgment for sin, that you and I would never face that. That we would never stand before God in judgment of our sin because we have put our faith and trust in Jesus and grace has been applied to us. In Noah's time... God provided humanity and creation with an ark to weather the storm, to escape this just judgment that was being poured out on humanity. And God is full of grace, and he provides a way out of sin and judgment through his amazing grace. We can't talk about judgment without talking about grace. Did you know that this flood story is a representation of the gospel? That sin has caused humanity to fall under judgment and the just judgment of God. But through his amazing grace... God provided us with an ark. You see, Jesus is our ark. When we put our faith and trust in Jesus, we are hidden in him. Colossians 3, 3 says, For you died, that's the old person, your sin has died, and your life is hidden in Christ with God. He's provided us an ark through his grace that we would weather that storm. Romans 8, 1 says, Therefore, he's talking about the gospel, he's talking about sin, he's talking about the law, he says, Therefore, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have been set free from sin. We are hidden in Christ. We are clothed with his righteousness. When we stand before God, we stand before God fully washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. And Galatians 3.26 says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God, sons and daughters of God through faith. That not only we wash clean, but by the grace of God we become sons and daughters again, where we have this direct relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And just like Noah had to ride out the storm in a wooden ark, we ride out the storm of this life in Christ Jesus where he's delivered us from sin. We will go through storms in life. That's guaranteed, right? But Jesus will deliver us from this sinful world into his glorious kingdom one day of perfection. I love how this story ends. God makes this covenant with Noah and the whole of humanity 
in, in uh, what is it? Chapter 8, 21. The Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake. Although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor again will I destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, day and night shall not cease. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He goes, I'll never do this again. He goes, This is my promise to you. And he actually gives them a command that he gave Adam and Eve, right? He says, multiply and fill the earth. This is a new beginning, a new start, where people will follow me, tell people about me, that they would follow me. God makes this covenant with humanity that he'll never again destroy the earth. And the sign of that covenant to Noah and us is the sign of the rainbow. In verse 12, it says, the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations... I set my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be for a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It shall be when I bring the cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud. And I'll remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. God makes this promise to humanity that this is not going to happen again. And that word rainbow in the Hebrew is kaseth, which literally means an archer's bow or pulling back of an archer's bow ready to shoot. And do we notice which way that bow is pointed? It's pointed up. It's pointed at God. He doesn't say to Noah, if you do all these things, I'll never do this anymore. He says, I'm making a covenant between me and you. And I promise God Almighty that I'll never do this again. And the bow's pointed in my direction. So my head's on the chopping block. But God is faithful. God is good. And God is full of grace. And so we see in this rainbow, this, this covenant that God keeps. This covenant he keeps with Noah and humanity. And I'm sure if God didn't make this covenant with humanity, that we would be constantly worried about God flooding the earth again, right? Like think about World War I, World War II. Like there was a lot of death. Millions of people died. If you talk to anyone who's been on those battlefields, it was like being in hell. Death, destruction pain and suffering could you imagine being there and thinking God are you going to flood us again every time it rained you'd be thinking is this it is he going to wipe us out again because all I see is pain and suffering but God promises he won't and he makes this covenant with Noah and humanity and you know what we have a greater covenant from God now and that's salvation through faith in Jesus Romans 5 says you have been justified by faith we have peace with God. We're at peace with Him through the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into His grace in which we stand. We stand on the grace of God, not on the judgment of God. We stand on His loving mercy. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character, hope. That in and through Christ, we walk through this life, through the storms, but he will carry us through that, that we would reflect him and we would speak the grace and the love of God through people. And then in verse 20, I love this. He says, moreover, the law entered that offense might abound. He's saying the law shows us that we're all sinners. He says, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Grace abounded much more. So that 
as sin reigned in death, even so grace may reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is beautiful. You can't talk about the judgment of God without talking about the grace of God. And where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. Because that's the heart of God. Grace triumphs over sin and judgment. And you know what? There's a world out there. There is a world full of people that need to know God's grace. They think God hates them. They think God wants to judge them. But God wants to pour out His grace upon them. He wants to love them and restore them. And we get the opportunity to share God's grace with people. They need to know that Jesus took that judgment for their sin and that they can be freely forgiven and receive eternal life. So as Christians, as those that know the grace of God, that stand firm on the grace of God through faith, let us share the amazing grace of God with anyone we come into contact with. That they may know Him and turn to Him and be redeemed and restored. Oh man, may the Lord open our eyes to the amazing grace that we find in Scripture, but also the grace that's over our lives as well. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your grace. We thank you that your grace triumphs sin. That although each and every one of us has sinned and fallen short of your glory, you sent your Son to die for us. And it's only by your great love and your mercy and your grace that we can stand before you clothed in righteousness, washed clean by the blood of Christ. Lord, we come before you and we give you thanks and we give you praise. And I just felt earlier that there might be people sitting here that feel the judgment of God, that think, God can't love me. I've done too many things for God to love me. He can't possibly pour out his grace on me. Yes, he can. There is no sin too grave that grace can't cover. And God's saying to you, you are my son, you are my daughter. Rest in that. We live out of a place of new life in Christ. We live out of the firm foundation of grace. He's saying, put that at my cross. Hand it over to me. Know that I'm a loving God. That I want to pour out my grace and my love upon you. And you may be sitting there and you've never actually accepted the grace of God. That you recognize, yeah, I'm a sinner just like everyone else. God wants to restore you. He wants to redeem you. He wants you to live a life full of love and mercy and grace. He wants to forgive you, but you need to repent. You need to put your faith and trust in Jesus. God's hand is out and he's asking you to take it. He's saying, come home, son or daughter. I want to give you life, life to the full and eternal life. If that's you today, if this is the first time you've understood the grace of God, that he wants a relationship with you, you can simply pray this prayer after me in your heart. Heavenly Father, forgive me of my sin. I thank you for your love and your grace. And I believe Jesus died for me. He took away my sin. And I believe he rose again in victory over sin and death. Heavenly Father, I ask for your Holy Spirit to bring me life, and life to the full. In Jesus' name.